Hello and welcome to Switzer TV Investing. I'm Peter Switzer and tonight Switzer is doing drugs, medicinal cannabis, coronavirus killers and big pharma companies. Last week a local drug company saw its share price spike 52% in one day because it had been recruited by the CSIRO to crush COVID-19. And that pretty unknown company appeared at our microcap conference earlier in the year before we were all scared to death by something called the coronavirus. It was then a 55 cent stock, but today is 94 cents or 70% higher. And its share price today is greater than it was before the coronavirus came to town. We also get up to speed on whether medicinal cannabis will take your portfolio to a new high with Rhys Cohen, Principal Consultant of Freshleaf Analytics. And I find out how a hard-nosed investor like Paul Rickard of the Switzer Report is investing in the drug space. Does he have a favourite company that he likes? And finally, we ask Julia Lee if she's doing drugs in her portfolio of Berman Invest. Let's kick off with Julia right now. Switzer is doing drugs tonight, so I want to know whether Julia Lee is doing drugs in the Berman investment portfolio. Julia. Uh, <laughs> um, I guess uh, we're talking about biotechs. Yeah. Yes, of course I'm talking about biotech I'm doing, or big pharma, anything that you think yeah, in this space is worth thinking about. Sure. So uh, uh, we're invested in Mesoblast. Um, yeah. They've received compassionate approval to use uh, REM, REM stem cell uh, yeah. L in uh, children in two months to 18-year-olds who are suffering from acute uh, respiratory distress um, due to COVID-19 over in the US. So that was only announced last week. And of course, they also are in the process of phase two, three uh, trials using it in COVID-19 and they were looking at recruiting 300 people. So those initial results are due any day and certainly this quarter. So there are a few catalysts. And outside of that, we know that um, their product can be used in graph versus host, which mm. they're also looking at approval, as well as having uh, products for things like back pain. Uh, and um, I guess they have a lot of catalysts coming up over the next two to three quarters, which um, makes it exciting. But of course, with all biotechs, it really depends on the outcome of these trials. Mm. You, you've been a big fan for Mesoblast for a long time, and it's been quite rewarding, hasn't it? Oh, well, it has been up and down, and I guess the whole thing with biotechs is that it can often take up to a decade mm. to get the product um, making significant revenue and getting through phase one, phase two, phase three trials, and then through to distribution. So certainly there are a lot of hurdles along the way. What I like about Mesoblast is that it's stem cells that work. Um, and look, I think that it is a new area which makes it difficult to break into and there's high hurdles there. But Mesoblast is now making revenue um, out of some of its products, selling into Japan. And now with COVID-19, I think it can mean an acceleration. If it is able to be used in acute uh, respiratory distress, um, then I think that open up, opens up another potential market. Um, mm. It's traditionally used in... Um, uh, graft versus host, the stem cell, L. Um, but obviously other people that 
get ads um, are usually as a result of pneumonia. So I think it opens up potential new market and it, it is dependent on that FDA approval from the US. What, what percentage of your portfolio would Mesoblast be? Uh, it is quite speculative. So speculative um, investments are usually no more than about 5 to 6% of the portfolio at most. Mm. Um, so Mesoblast, look, is an interesting one. And I think another one that we don't hold in the portfolio because it's not part of the ASX 200 is a company called Genetic Signatures. GSS is a stock code. And this is all around uh, testing for diseases. And in particular, they received um, the approval to test for COVID-19 through their platform. Um, and so they've been selling their, their product into Australia and, and the US as well. So the share price has risen quite significantly, but certainly has accelerated uh, that platform, which has been around for years as well. So there are some COVID-19 related ones. One that, one that is not COVID related is um, Opthea. OPT is a stock code there, and that has to do with uh, Muscular degeneration of the eye, which I think is quite an exciting area. And look, its share price has done very well. The other one I like is ProMedicus. I went to get an X-ray the other day, Peter, mm. and um, they still give you the big envelope to take to the doctor. And <laughs> I, I find it amazing in this day and age that those X-rays aren't just sent uh, via email or through a file mm. to doctors. So having that high-level imagery available, um, I think, is next step. Uh, for the medical industry, and that's where ProMedicus is. Yeah, I think I had one, not, uh, and they gave me a big envelope as well, but they did send it to the doctor uh, in an email as well. So I think they send the they notes. Just, they send yeah. the notes, but yeah. um, to get the 2D, 3D imaging, that's what ProMedicus looks at. Yeah. Yeah. So to send it to specialists yeah. to look at and not just the notes around the person who yeah. did the um, diagnostics. I thought maybe they had oversupply big envelopes. This one just keep on using, <laughs> using them. Uh, but that, later in the program, we're talking to uh, the executive director of Recce Pharmaceutical, which had a, a big week last week. Have you? Uh, I, I didn't mention this to you, but have you ever looked at that company? Uh, no. No, it had a big week last week. But once again, it's outside the top 200, so I wouldn't expect you to, you to know that one. I should have given you a heads up on it. Now, <laughs> you now, usually don't, Pete. That's been our relationship. But you've, you always pass the test. That's how good you are. Now, <laughs> so what about medicinal cannabis? I've kind of interviewed lots of companies over the years. It just seems like a confusing space. Have you ever gleaned through it and, and, and sort of settled on one that you thought had a bit of potential? Sure. Look, this is a new emerging area, and I think it's quite exciting. I think cannabis as um, a whole in terms of the stock market, it hasn't had a great reputation because I guess a lot of marketers have been involved in some of these companies. Yeah. And one of the key things I look at when I look at, um, I guess, new and upcoming companies is um, what they have as a percentage of their stock issued in things like performance rights or options, which are given out to staff or people that might might be involved with the company. And generally, I want to see well less than 10% of the stock that's issued. And with some of these companies, it can get up to about 20%. Mm. So it's always one thing to keep an eye on. Whenever I have a look at something like cannabis, if you look at growing wheat or um, I guess any sort of commodity, it really is something that's relatively easy to increase the supply of and in terms of cannabis i've never tried to grow it myself but i didn't i'd enough. imagine it'd be like any other crop so if there was a high price for it then 
farmers who had the ability to grow it and the approval to grow it, then they could grow it very well. So really it was just dependent on supply versus demand. And if demand is strong, then supply uh, very well could overwhelm that demand. So usually when it comes to commodity-based stock, the, the time I look to sell out of the stock is when you see a big supply response. But of course, the value of it is um, in terms of the marketing and the other products you can make. And certainly uh, cannabis derivatives are used to treat anything from pain to um, to appetite to, um, to even acne. So I think it's an exciting growing area. But I think in here in Australia, we're probably behind the curve and we're more in our infancy of this um, journey because of the rules that we've had over here. So I think the US companies and the Canadian companies might be ahead of us there. Yeah, but at this point in time, you have no favourite. No. No, I don't blame you. I think you, I talked to um, someone from the association that sort of monitors it and it's very hard for them to get really keen on anything as well. Now, finally, before you go, Julia, this is a company that for years, everyone had in their portfolio, but uh, in recent times, it's sort of dropped out for a variety of reasons. Origin Energy, what's your view on that company? I guess Origin Energy is a little bit different from other oil and gas companies in that it does have the utilities side of its business as well as the, the gas and oil side of its business through its mm. um, Australia Pacific LNG project. But with oil prices so relatively low, um, it's a, a difficult environment for that gas side of the business. And instead, it's probably the uh, the utility side of the business that's relatively more attractive in its defensive type of cash flows. So if I was looking at that type of company, I'd probably prefer to go down a pure utilities play, something like an APA, um, which is exposed to the transmission and the pipelines than something that's an half, a half oil and gas and a half utilities company. And if I was looking at an oil and gas company, I'd probably prefer something like Beach Petroleum, which has a great track record in terms of it, its projects and in terms of growth. Great stuff, Julia. As always, I'll put you on the spot with that, that one as well, but of course you came through and delivered like a good utility company would. I love our chats, Pete. Always <laughs> gives me on my toes. Okay, Julia. Thanks for joining us. Talk to you next week. Thanks, Pete. That's Julia Lee from Berman Invest. Well, consistent with our theme of looking at companies in the drug space or the pharmaceutical space, we're talking to James Graham. Now, he's the executive director of Recce Pharmaceuticals. And this company had a really good week last week. Let's find out why. James, thanks for joining us. Hi, Peter. Good to be here. Yeah. I should explain to our viewers that uh, you guys came along to our microcap conference earlier this year. Yes. And, and we thought you had a really interesting story. Uh, and as I say, last week, the, the market sort of caught up with that story. <laughs> why don't you tell us, first of all, what you guys do and then tell us why last week was good news for you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our, our story remains true. Our activities remain broad and all focused on the infectious disease space. Mm. You know, the, the world as we know it has changed and the pandemic and challenge of infectious diseases has never been more challenging and the pipeline, quite frankly, never more dry. So we've been moving our new class of antibiotic technology or really anti-infective technology with capability against bacteria and viruses mm. through its developmental program. So, 
you know, with three major unmet medical needs, the third being coronavirus, by example, which we announced last week, um, you know, we've got an incredibly unique technology and are positioned well with uh, a lot of opportunity to come. Mm. So what is so special about what you guys do compared to others out there? Well, it's, it's, we've began with the end in mind. All existing antibiotics, by example, are from nature, cultivated out, and they have a specific mechanism of action binding to a type of bacteria. Our well, so it binds it and kills it? it? It actually binds to it and it causes it to have a, um, a physicochemical interreaction. So the bacteria cell actually bursts. Mm. Now, that mechanism of action is broadened across to viral cells. Because when a virus invades a hu healthy human cell, that same a high metabolic process and pressure occurs within that cell. So we really interact with that cellular pressure. We call our, our drugs antibiotics. There's no bio in our biotics. It's all by what we want, not by what's given to us. So therefore, we have a great, a great outcome as a result. So is it like synthetic as opposed to... 100% synthetic. Organic? Yes. Yeah. No, there's, there's nothing organic besides maybe the, the type of water we use in it. Mm. It's, it's synthesised, so with what we want, a molecular structure of a series of, of uh, monomers stuck together with desired characteristics. So we avoid, avoid the downsides of, of some things that are given to in, us in nature, whilst getting the upsides of um, a uh, hydrophobic attraction binding to the protein, unique mechanism of action regardless of cellular mutation, um, extraordinary economies in synthesis, and, and you know I can go on. So is it like a heat-seeking missile tr looking for the virus or the infection and then it attacks it? Uh, we could call it that. I'd say it has a stronger, a strong affinity for the proteinaceous layer of viral and bacterial cells. What did you say? <laughs> okay, right yeah. I am trying to make it understandable for normal people. Sure. Okay. So why did the stock market get so excited about last week? Well, look, there hasn't been a, a firstly on the antibiotic side, there hasn't been a new class of antibiotics in over thirty years. Right. Um, our antibiotic side, which we're now stepping across into, into our antiviral side is the only one in the world with a qualified infectious disease designation awarded by the FDA for sepsis. Now, when we take that technology and a variant form of that technology enhanced for uh, attraction to viral cells, and we announce a, uh, a agreement with CSIRO and Doty Institute for its use on coronavirus as a priority one test candidate, mm. what's well, not to be excited about? Yeah, okay. So, so effectively, CSIRO have looked at what you guys have been doing. Uh, they're, they're trying to, to beat COVID-19 and they think that you guys m might give them a, a, an opportunity to successfully tackle COVID-19. The world as we know it, including particularly CSIRO, has been so focused on vaccines. And if we look to flu vaccine, by example, every year you get a new flu vaccine because the viral cells are mutating, they have to keep updating it. Yeah. Coronavirus has an unprecedented mutation and we believe only our mechanism of action is able to overcome that hypercellular mutation. Mm. And things like if we look to say HIV, uh, that is a therapeutic treatment only type virus for a similar reason. Mm. So I think increasingly the researchers are recognising that vaccines might not be the ultimate answer, mm. might never work out from, from the vaccine side but a therapeutic that can get on top of infection early 
regardless of cellular mutation and in our antibiotics keep on working with repeated use, mm. that's something that needs to be investigated. So we all, we've all become experts on the coronavirus you know, <laughs> since late February of this year. And wh what we were told was that we were hoping for either a vaccine or a treatment. Do you guys fall into the treatment category? We're 100% in the treatment category. Um, we don't believe in vaccines and we, do, we are not in the vaccine space for the reason of that hypercellular mutation. Um, we're not a COVID pop-up shop. We've been doing this and will continue to do this as part of our infectious disease business strategy. Mm. Uh, this is one of three key areas and, and you know, we're, we're not, uh, not ashamed of that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, let's just look, obviously we're hearing the, the pro and the pros and the, the blue sky of all this. And of course, we all know trying to beat coronavirus is not easy. Everyone's got about 130 teams around the world trying to find it. But let, let's just imagine that for some reason, CSIRO can't make your technology work for this. But does the fact that CSIRO has recognised it, does it open up the potential for the company in lots of other areas where people didn't even know you, were, you existed? Absolutely. It's amazing. You know, we spoke earlier about uh, people and, and companies coming out of the woodwork. Uh, for quite some time, uh, certainly since we made the opening address at the World Superbug Congress, pharmaceutical companies have been engaging with us. Yeah. It's either a threat to their existing pipeline or a competitive opportunity against those they're surrounded with. So yes, uh, I mean, they are knocking, and I say they, medical research institutes, um, passive, you know, at-home researchers who just go, how could an antibiotic work on viruses? And it's that um, infectious disease model, not an antibiotic model, because antibiotics should not be used on viruses. It's this new type of technology that has capability against both. And um, yeah, we're, we're flattered to have their commendation, and uh, we certainly anticipate a positive outcome as a result. Okay. Now, James, you know, you're a very impressive person, but... I half suspect you weren't the guy who discovered this. No, so, no. So <laughs> you're good at explaining it, but so so who was the who were the people behind this idea, and where did the idea come from? Absolutely, Peter. So I take on the commercial side. Mm. Our business is a sum of all parts. Each one of us has a particular area of interest in. Mm. You can see I'm passionate in what I do. Yeah. But the inventor is former head of research of Johnson & Johnson Australasia of a decade mm -hmm. and executive director of their board. So a third of the globe responsibilities. His uh, expertise is chemistry. Mm -hmm. So from a pharmaceutical perspective, he looked, what Who is, is this, this, by the way? Dr. Graham Melrose. Okay. So yeah. Dr. Melrose looked at the problem and the world that is and really did come out of retirement mm -hmm. with the synthetic chemistry approach. Mm -hmm. How can I fit the pharmaceutical model address unmet medical needs by applying a unique 100% soluble compound with known characteristics. And all uh, studies to date have supported that. And to the point of CSIRO, we obviously had some antiviral activity in a respiratory animal virus previously with a close RNA profile to the coronavirus cell. So mm. it's by design, not by what's given to us in nature and great people around the company to support that. Mm. What are the other opportunities for 
the, the product. And what is the name of the key product? We, we refer to our primary product is Recce 327. So 327 mm. is bacterial focused. Um, our main indication is sepsis, septicemia, or blood poisoning. Mm. About 50 million people that's, worldwide. That's where you basically that's where targeted. Yep. Correct. So now we've expanded uh, that technology to other areas because it is a technology, not just a single product. Mm. Uh, we have a pending human ethics trial submission with a leading West Australian teaching hospital for burns, infections. Um, I'd like to think preventative, but really it is curative focused on mm. a, certainly a vulnerable patient population there. Um, so I think a near term, very near term in fact, uh, would be an outcome of uh, that submission which is pending at this moment. But with the, our in parallel uh, sepsis study starting in the second half of this calendar year in the eastern states of Australia without giving too much away there, we have multiple pr uh, product avenues and opportunities and I think it will be a busy time. Alright, so what is the cash position of the company? Well some months ago we, we raised uh, just near $7 million at 26 cents per share mm. amongst sophisticated investors. Since that time, we have about or approximately half that according to our last quarterly announcement. Mm. But we've now stepped into the new financial year. All of our Australian R&D is 43.5% applicable, but uniquely to us, all of our international as well. So with our prior cash position of last financial year, with our coming new R&D credit position uh, as drawn from the Australian government, I see our true cash runway at this moment of about five to six million dollars. Mm. So we're not out raising capital, we're just disclosing news events as they occur and, and we're confident uh, to support our coming opportunities with that. Great. That's James Graham, Executive Director of Recce Pharmaceuticals. Well, one area of investing, a lot of people feel as though there's a potential, but I guess some people have some question marks about how long before the potential is realised is in the area of cannabis. Uh, and uh, to look at this particular sector, we have Rhys Cohen, who's the principal consultant at Freshleaf Analytics. Rhys, thanks for joining us. Thank you. So Rhys, tell us what Freshleaf Analytics is on about? <laughs> well, we're a, um, a boutique consultancy, so we do management consulting and market research work uh, about medical cannabis, usually for medical cannabis product companies, but also for investors, regulators, and other interested parties. Yeah. So how many companies are listed on the stock market? The Australian Stock Exchange? Yeah. Uh, there's, there's, there's a good, there's a good dozen or two, I believe, but it really depends on where you draw the line between what you consider a cannabis company and what you don't. I mean, some of these companies are only marginally exposed to cannabis. Some of them don't touch any medical cannabis plants. Some of them are, are more involved in the biotech space as opposed to the cannabis space. So it's a bit of a gray area sometimes. Yeah. So I, I, what's the level of enthusiasm for cannabis stocks? Uh, I would say it's been better. Um, the, uh, the market's gone through, went through an extensive and brutal correction last year. Yeah. Uh, and then COVID, uh, of course, is upon us. Mm. So it's, uh, it's, it's been a tough time for some of these listed companies, I, I think it would be fair to say. Yeah. Why was there uh, enthusiasm? And then apart from COVID-19, what, what else made that enthusiasm dissipate? Well, I guess... The best way to start is with the long-term 
opportunity for medical cannabis or for cannabis in general, right? Because we're not just talking yeah. about medical cannabis here. So cannabis is the most widely used illicit drug in the world. Uh, about 10.5% of Australians used cannabis illicitly last year. Um, it's, it's a very popular commodity and, uh, and there's already existing and well-established demand for it. So the question really isn't, you know, how much demand is there for cannabis? We have a pretty good idea about the demand for cannabis. It's, you know, how much is the legal demand for cannabis and, and how well do the current regulatory frameworks allow companies to tap into that potential? Um, in the early days, and by early, I mean just a few years ago, there was, I would say, an over-exuberance, especially in North America, particularly in Canada, which is more exposed to international cannabis markets than the United States. And there was this... Um, this crazy rush for companies to put out press releases saying that they were building the largest facility or that they'd entered the, you know, the, the, the Paraguayan market. Um, and uh, there was all of this, um, lots of light and not enough heat, basically. Mm. Um, and, and this all came crashing down throughout 2019. Um, there was this promise that the recreational market in Canada was going to deliver these extraordinary revenues and that all of these massive capacities that these companies had built would be utilized fully. Uh, and there would be all these international markets that were opening up really quickly. Of course, none of that transpired. As it turns out, regulations take a lot of time, especially when we're talking about things as contentious as, as cannabis. And, uh, and so a lot of these companies have since then been um, shedding staff, selling facilities, um, closing down facilities, closing down companies. Um, and, and that's sort of where we ended up at the end of 2019. Um, and then, of course, you know, the rest, as we say, is history. Yeah. So this is for people who don't understand this. What you're telling us is basically two markets. One is the, the potential market for recreational use of cannabis that in, in some jurisdictions have, has become legal. And, and the, I guess the hope for the, the, the team supporting that kind of product is that more and more jurisdictions will make it acceptable and therefore that would be an investment opportunity. On the other hand, you've got the medical cannabis uh, uh, sector, which is in a sense accepted, uh, but it's not universally supported by the medical uh, fraternity and that sort of impeded the growth. Is that a fair call? I think that's accurate. I would also add to that there is a third emerging market, which is the sort of nutraceutical market for certain cannabis products. So cannabis is a plant and it produces all these various chemicals and THC is a chemical that the, that the plants produce and that causes intoxication and also is useful for medical purposes. But there's another chemical called CBD or cannabidiol that the plants produce that doesn't cause that doesn't cause intoxication and is potentially therapeutic and, and medicinally useful and is now increasingly popular as a wellness product. Um, so throughout North America, throughout Europe, um, CBD or cannabidiol is uh, loosely regulated or regulated as a food and it's found it's into a whole bunch of, of other products like, you know, vitamins, sports drinks, um, you know, being infused into gummy bears. Uh, and and that's, a, that's another distinct product <laughs> category that has its own logic. Right. Okay. And so it seems to me that it's diversifying into an extraordinary uh, number of areas. Mm. What is the, the area involving ca cannabis that's going to have the most um, logical and the most um, understandable progress to acceptance and, and therefore is probably the most reliable for investors. 
And be right, say, and be right, Ruth, as well. <laughs> and be right, easy. I would say, I would say, actually, there's two correct answers to that question, and they're at they're at opposite ends of the pyramid, right? So at the bottom end of the pyramid is um, the normalization of CBD as a as a wellness product and as a food ingredient. I think that has a long way to play out. Um, it's a very popular product moment i think something like 15 percent of american adults have already used a cbd product um and you know it's only been in the popular parlance for for a few years so i think i think that has its i think that has a lot of long-term potential and that's an fmcg high volume low cost you know brand driven um strategy and then at the opposite end of the spectrum you have uh pharmaceutically validated and registered medicines that happen to contain cannabinoids so that that is largely untapped at the moment there's only um I guess one, one and a half companies globally that have successfully pursued that strategy so far. The medical research on cannabis and its therapeutic effects um, is is paltry. Uh, so the potential for cannabis cannabinoids or some kind of cannabinoid formulation to be proven to be effective for treating a specific symptom, I think that's a very real possibility. But that's a long term, high cost, high risk pharmaceutical strategy. Okay, so so a lot of people out there who've never really done the homework like you have, would have thought that there were a few uh, medicinal cannabis companies out there that um, have made progress, have had a degree of acceptance, and over time they're going to be more and more accepted and therefore would be a reasonably reliable um, investment speculation. Mm -hmm. is, that, is that correct? I think that's correct. You know, d depending on how well they're able to protect themselves. I mean, yeah. the way I see it is at the moment we have a lot of very large companies that are that are pursuing medical cannabis, uh, you know, prescription-based mm. cannabis medicines, but they're doing it in a way that is relying on the ongoing popularity of cannabis medicines without thinking too much about how can I protect my intellectual property long-term? How can I register a medicine that might attract PBS subsidies? Mm. Um, that isn't yet part of their long-term strategies. So I think those companies will do well and continue to do well until such time as the pharmaceutical players come in and say, well, actually, you know, why are you prescribing this unapproved medicine? Um, we have something that's demonstrated to be effective, and we've demonstrated it to such an extent that the federal government is going to subsidise this medicine for you. Mm. I think that's the long-term risk to those sorts of normal generic cannabis medicine companies. Now, Rez, I was warned by my producer that, you know, you, you won't be tipping companies and whatever, but I'm still going to try and tease something <laughs> out of you because if someone said to me, uh, Pete, you know, what, what banks do you like? I could easily say, well, I know them all, but the one who looks the most reliable would be the CBA for a reliable sure. investment. And, and maybe Westpac or NAB might be a, a, a one that will do well because they've been beaten up and they'll come back. Mm. But if I said to you, what company looks the best placed to do well in this space, could you give me a name or two? Not with any degree of certainty. And that's not just because I'm cheekily avoiding naming specific companies. It's right. because genuinely this space is incredibly dynamic and, and unpredictable. And, you know, working in the cannabis industry, we have this term called, you know, cannabis years, like one year, one year in cannabis is seven years um, in any other industry, just because there's so much stuff going on all the time um, right. and things change so rapidly. So I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't personally be confident putting any of my money um, on, on predicting the success of any one company at the moment. All right, so, so my next question was, 
Is there any of those companies that you've actually put your money into at this point in time? Absolutely not. I, I never have and I don't intend to hold any cannabis stocks. It's too difficult to manage conflicts of interest. Yeah, okay. So, but how long do you think it will be before someone like you, who hasn't made that promise to himself like you just told us you've made, would be able to say with confidence, here are the top companies who are likely to leverage off this potential market um, going forward? Well, I mean, there, there are definitely companies out there at the moment that are doing better than others. Yeah. Um, I would just encourage people to do, do a bit of historical research because two years ago, um, you could very confidently say X, Y, and Z company are the market leaders. Their prices have, have gone up month on month. Look how wonderful they are. And those are some of the largest cannabis corporations in the world. How could you go wrong? And those are the companies that are now um, catastrophically failing uh, to, to re retain their value, who are shedding staff, who are selling facilities for half of what they bought them for. Um, so, uh, yeah, invest wisely. Yeah, okay. It sounds as though if you are going to invest in this sector, it might be a good idea not to smoke a bit of weed before you do it. <laughs> Look, you know, that's your decision. You know, I want to tell you how to live your life. You know? <laughs> <laughs> All right, Bruce, thanks for joining us. Very, very informative. My pleasure. Thank you. So with our program with the theme being drug companies, I'm interested to see whether a hard-nosed investor like Paul Rick out of the Switzer Report has any interest in the sector. Paul, I, I can't recall you ever talking about drug companies. No, look, drug companies and biotech have never been my strong suit, Peter. Mm. But look, here's a couple of at either end of the spectrum. One mm. for, yeah, I guess people want to play more the sector itself. Mm. Uh, probably the easiest way is an ETF called Drug, D-R-U-G, easy to remember. That's well named. Look, that tracks a NASDAQ um, Global Healthcare Index, which mm. is by and large, you know, a whole of drug and biotech companies. There's big pharma, they call it. Big pharma. There's a couple of names like Johnson & Johnson. They're a little bit into this space. So it's not purely um, biotechnology. But, yeah. you know, the, the, the sort of the drug companies people have been talking about in the States, they're all there. Yeah. Uh, as are, you know, selection from Switzerland and, and Germany, where a lot of these places are based as well. So mm. Um, mm. That, that's an easy way to do it. D-R-U-G. You won't, you won't forget Fear that, that one. Uh, yeah. stock code. At the other end of the spectrum, Peter, uh, a little company called uh, Imagine Biosystems, mm. um, company stock code IDX. Uh, they're really into sort of a non-invasive imaging, so a way to be able to detect cancer without actually having to, mm. you know, rip someone apart. I gather at the moment that the current ways that, that those scans are done, they sort of identify there's a problem, yeah. but until the surgeon sort of dives in, you don't really know how big the problem, and they've got mm. another sort of um, imaging way of actually you know, being able to confirm cancer. So it's like uh, a high-tech way of actually trying to work out whether there is something going on yeah, inside. Yeah, that's right. So they're trading around about four and a half cents. They've done a recent capital raising. They've got enough cash to last them a year. Mm. We've interviewed them, met the, the CEO a couple of times. And, yeah, look, it's... Look, total different it's speculation. Respect. Total it? speculation. Yeah, you yeah. ought to be a believer. But, we're, not, uh, we're not recommending anything, but certainly... Yeah, so that's, uh, you know, it's four and a half cents stock. You know, what do you expect? Uh, but the, the, the stock code is IDX yeah, for okay. Imagine Biosystems Limited. Okay. And I've got to say, I'm not a, I'm not a, a big player of the, the drug or biotech space because it is speculation. And, you know, if you're happy to have a core of investments that are good solid ones, are the ones I often chase, that's fine. But if you want a little bit of speculation, these are the sort of things you can think about. 
Paul, and, you, and you probably in Australia do need to look at the small caps because we, we because our market's so small, we tend to focus more on those early stages of research. Mm. And then, you know, because it takes so much money for one of these ideas to be, go to a sort of a phase three trial, wherever yeah. it is, and you have to get FDA approval in the States, so they true. tend to sell their IDs or, or their IP or get bought out by a foreign... By a big company. By yeah. a big company. So mm. you've really got to, in, in the Australian context, I think you've got to really play in that smaller yeah. space to some extent. And I think a lot of people actually have spread their, their investments around. They might go for, for 10 small caps with small amounts, but if it, if it pays a big dividend, it could be quite interesting. Paul, before you go, one of the followers of the program was interested in Origin Energy. Now, I've got to say, I've lost interest in uh, Origin and AGL because they've become more confusing over the years. But what's your view on Origin? Yeah, I have lost interest as well, Peter, in those stocks for a couple of reasons. One is that they're very regulated. And two, they are playing in sort of both the wholesale and the retail markets. So a bit like, uh, you know, AGL, you know, Origin, of course, has got uh, a big uh, LNG business. It's an LNG exporter. It's a producer. Mm. It's also got an electricity distribu retail distribution business. Yeah. And um, both those markets are more and more regulated. And I think that's what sort of the challenge is. So um, I, I've sort of been a bit clear yeah. of uh, both Origin and AGL for that reason. Yeah. Once upon a time, everyone had them in their portfolio, but I think over the last few years, it's become less clear about whether you, you can actually understand where they're going. Well, it's also very un unclear to understand the, the pricing because uh, yeah, LNG obviously is not the same as oil. We can see the oil price go up and down, and, and the LNG or long-term contract does relate. Yeah to the oil price, but they're not the same, and LNG, if anything, has been an oversupply. So well, there's, there's two sides I'd like to throw this in, in this discussion, Paul. Is one is uh, LNG is often seen as a bit of quality um, alternative source of energy, and Warren Buffett recently went really long. Uh, I think his company, Berkshire Hathaway, now supplies like 19% of LNG in the USA. But some experts reckon that LNG is past it. It's going to be renewables will, will surpass it. So, Well, it is, of course, a carbon derivative, so uh, or has, has carbon, so who's, who knows? I mean, I think we're, we're well positioned. Look, I think for the energy sector, I just, I just stay with Woodside. Uh, maybe if I'm feeling brave Santos. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but uh, they're, they're the sort of two stocks that I, I, I focus on in that sector. Okay. Paul Rickard from the Switzer Report. Thanks very much. That's the show for tonight. Thanks for joining us on the program. And if you want some more information about the stocks that we like, have a look at switzerreport.com.au. There's a free trial there. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks very much for joining us once again. I'm Peter Switzer. <laughs>